If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want to encourage you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 12. Gospel of Matthew chapter 12. We're going to be looking at the, starting at the 38th verse, Matthew chapter 12. As you're making your way there, I'm going to give you a little bit of time to get there, and then I'm going to pray for us, and we will, we will get started. Matthew chapter 12, verses 38, and we'll be going through 42. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we come to you today and we recognize that you have given us your word and how gracious you are that you would give us your word. But Lord, we, we come to you this morning knowing how much we are needy, we're needy. For us to hear your word and not just hear it, Lord, but be those who actually take it to heart. And we need your spirit's help to do that. And so, Lord, we, we recognize our dependence upon you. I know I am weak and needy and insufficient. But, Lord, your word is not. I pray that the power of the gospel would go forth today and that you would accomplish great things the glory of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, it may not surprise you when I, I tell you that the teaching of Jesus Christ is very different than the teaching that you will hear in the world. To give you an example of that, the world teaches that there are many ways to God. That everybody is, is on their way to God. We're just all taking different paths. And so, for instance, the Buddhist is taking one path, and the Muslim is taking another, and the Christian is taking another, and the agnostic is taking another, and the atheist is taking another, but we're all going to end up in the same place. But Jesus teaches the exact opposite of that. Jesus teaches that he is the exclusive way to God. He says that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, thereby canceling every other path. He declares that he's the only one and the only way. How can we know? How can we know who's, who's true? Which, which option is true? How about this one? The world teaches that if you are true to yourself, if you're sincere in your beliefs, no matter what they are, and you try to good, live a good life, that if there is a God, that he will accept you. But Jesus teaches something quite different. Jesus teaches that unless you believe in him alone, you will die in your sins and you will perish forever. Maybe you're visiting with us this morning and, and you're thinking to yourself about right now, what have I gotten myself into? This is why I don't come to church in the first place. If that's you, I'm going to encourage you to stick with me today because the reality is, is that what Jesus teaches is either true or it's false. And you owe it to yourself to be certain which one it is because literally your eternity is on the line. How can you know with certainty that what Jesus taught is the truth and not error. Christian, how can you know with certainty that what you're believing is, is not just hogwash, that it's not in vain? Non-Christian, how can you know that world, what the world teaches is false and what Jesus teaches is true? Well, we're going to let Jesus answer that question for us today in Matthew chapter 12. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to be parachuting into the middle of a series of interactions that Jesus is having with a group known as the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, the scribes were experts in the law of Moses, and the Pharisees were, were one of the strictest sects of Judaism. And, and these are most likely religious leaders that Jesus is talking to, and they've, they have, at this point, they've heard Jesus' teaching, and they hate it. And they hate him. 
Not because his teaching contradicted the Old Testament scriptures, because it was in perfect accordance with the Old Testament, but because it contradicted their worldview. It contradicted their traditions. Jesus' teaching to them was like an x-ray machine that exposed the hypocrisy of their wicked hearts, and they hated him for it. And looming in the background of our, of our, of our passage today is this question. How do we know that what you're teaching, Jesus, is the capital T truth from God? Let's turn to the word, starting in verse 38 in Matthew chapter 12. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up the, at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. We're going to be unpacking this, this passage today. And the main point that I want you to take out of this passage is this, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ should grip your soul because... It is the undeniable sign that everything he taught is the capital T truth. Not one of many truths. Not subjective truth, which is this idea that you have your truth and I have my truth. And we could be completely opposite, but we both have our own truths. We're not talking about that. What we're talking about is the resurrection is the undeniable sign that everything Jesus said is the objective truth. True for all peoples, in all times, in all generations, regardless of whether or not a person accepts it or rejects it. See, the resurrection is the sign that proves that Jesus is not a false teacher teaching false doctrine. That he's not a false prophet for telling a future that will never come to pass. That he's not a false Messiah who will never have his kingly reign over all the earth as he said he would. And he's not a deluded lunatic claiming to be God. But rather, the resurrection proves that he is who he says he is. And that he will do what he says he will do. I want you to see this for yourself as we unfold Matthew chapter 12 verses 38 through 40. We're going to break up this passage this morning into three headings, under three headings. The evil request, the undeniable sign, and the ominous warning. First, I want you to observe the evil request in verse 38 and the first part of verse 39. This is what he says in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. As I mentioned earlier, earlier these were most likely religious leaders. Leaders who professed to know God, professed to know their Bible, and they come to Jesus with this request. Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now, the type of sign that they're, they're asking Jesus, is requesting from him, is something that would validate that Jesus had been sent from God. You may remember this, when God appears to Moses at the burning bush, and he orders Moses, commands Moses to go to Egypt and deliver the Israelites out of enslavement in Egypt. And you remember what Moses said? He says, I don't, I don't think Israel is going to, to believe that you appeared to me, God. You remember what God did? God said, Moses, take that staff that's in your hand and throw it out on the ground. And Moses did it and it turned into a serpent and slithered off. Moses slithered off too. And then God commanded Moses to come and, and pick up the, the serpent by the tail and it became a staff again. What's going on there? See, God was providing a sign that validated that Moses had indeed experienced God's appearance right before him. 
And so this is what the scribes and the Pharisees mean when they request a sign from Jesus. They're, they're essentially saying, show us a miracle that will validate that God sent you. That the things that you're teaching are from God. Perform a sign for us to prove yourself. Now, at first glance, that really doesn't sound like an unreasonable request, does it? I mean, the reality is, is Jesus' crowd-drawing ministry had, had appeared almost out of nowhere, right? Unlike Paul, the Apostle Paul, who had studied under the famous Rabbi Gamaliel. Jesus never trained under any famous rabbi. Yet, Jesus' teaching was soaked in an authority that would not just make you think that he was from God. Listen to what he said in the Sermon on the Mount, just a few chapters before our chapter today. Here's what Jesus said. He says, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. Speaking, by the way, of the sixth commandment out of the ten commandments, that's number six. You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, listen to that authority, but I say to you that who, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. With a God-like authority, Jesus declares that a person can break the sixth commandment by simply being angry with somebody and thus just as liable to God's judgment as someone who murders. And so it doesn't sound like an unreasonable request from the scribes and the Pharisees. We wish to see a sign from you. Prove you're from God. That is, until we realize that this request wasn't asked out of a genuinely inquisitive heart that's open to the truth. You see, they had already witnessed undeniable signs that Jesus' teaching was from God. In the same chapter we're looking at today, chapter 12, Jesus had gone into a synagogue on the Sabbath day and there was a man in there with a withered hand crippling him. And Jesus said, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and it was completely healed. The Pharisees witnessed this. And what do you think they did? They, did they bow down to him and say, oh, now we believe you? No. It says that the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. A complete rejection of the sign. Just a couple of paragraphs later in the same chapter, Jesus took a man who was oppressed by a demon and he was blind and he was unable to speak. And Jesus exercised the demon out of the man and all of a sudden, his blind eyes were able to see and he was able to speak. The Pharisees witnessed this. And what do you think they did? Oh, now we got it. Now we believe. No, they couldn't deny the miracle, and so they just tried to pervert it and reinterpret it. They claimed that he had performed the sign by the power of Satan, when it had clearly been done by the power of God. See, this is the natural response of a heart that is hardened in unbelief. The problem is not a lack of evidence that Jesus is who he says he is. The problem is how the darkened mind interprets that evidence. It is in such rebellion to God and His Word that it will do everything it can to remain on the fence and never come to Christ. He or she will see clear evidence and they will reject it and they will suppress it and they will scoff at it and they will pervert it. Anything and everything except rightly interpreting the evidence and bowing down to Christ. See, this is why the Apostle John writes in his gospel in the third chapter, he says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. Speaking of, of Jesus coming into the world, he's the light and the truth that he taught. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness more than the light. They love living in the darkness of false beliefs rather than in the light of truth. Why? says because their works were evil for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light they do not come to Jesus lest his work should be exposed you see the darkness of false beliefs is a very comfortable place to live in sin because false beliefs are like mud to a pig see a pig can wallow in the mud to keep his skin cool just as a sin-loving man can wallow in false beliefs 
and keep his conscience cool. Free from guilt. Free to continue to indulge in the sin he loves so much. And just like with the scribes and the Pharisees, when clear evidence of the truth is presented right before his eyes, he says, that's not good enough. That's not good. That's off bounds. That's off base. Show me more signs. Show me more evidence. A sophisticated form of the stall tactic that allows him to continue to live in his most comfortable place, the darkness. Back to the text. What does Jesus think about this request for another sign? Look at the first part of verse 39. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. This verb seeks here is in the verbal form in, in Greek that sometimes can refer to this idea of continuance. And I'm fairly certain that this is what it is here. This is this idea that they were continually seeking, repetitive seeking for signs, for miracles, for evidence. There's never enough to satisfy. There's never enough to believe. Never enough to get off the fence. Jesus says that such a quality is a characteristic of an evil and an adulterous generation. Evil means wicked, immoral, spiritually sick. Adulterous means unfaithful. Like a wife who turns from her beloved husband that she's in covenant with, in the covenant of marriage, and she runs and chases after another. Jesus is speaking to the Jews here who were in a covenant relationship with, with God and they had, they had turned from him. This is how Jesus, though, describes all of those who continue to sit on the fence and say, show us more proof, show us more evidence, and then we'll believe when the proof they have is abundantly sufficient. Maybe you're listening today and this describes you. You're sitting on the fence. You're interested enough to come to an Easter service, but, but you're just not convinced. Who's to say that Christians are right and everybody else is wrong? Maybe you like to think of yourself as, as open-minded, as inclusive of all religions and all beliefs, never devoting yourself to just one. Or maybe, maybe you're just really, really smart and you think that in Christianity is intellectually inferior, that it's based on blind faith, a faith without solid reasons to believe. Regardless of where you stand this morning, whether Christian or non-Christian, pay careful attention to what Jesus says next. We've just seen the evil request, now let's look at the undeniable sign in verses 39 and 40. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Kids, you know the historical account of Jonah, how God had commanded Jonah to go and, and proclaim a message that to, to the Ninevites, these people in Nineveh, that his judgment was coming. And, but Jonah hated the Ninevites. And, and he didn't want to warn them because he knew that God was merciful to those who heeded his warnings. And he just wanted God's judgment to come upon him. And so he hopped on a ship and he tried to run away from God. But we know, kids, that we can't run away from God. You know that too, right, adults? We can't run away from God. But God sent this storm as a judgment upon Jonah and the ship... Was, what he was on was being beaten by the waves so severely that it was close to falling apart. And Jonah finally admits that the reason for the storm was him. And he tells the men on the ship to cast him into the sea and that the storm would, would subside. And that's exactly what he did. They did. Jonah walked the plank. And as soon as he hit those waters, the storm stopped. And while Jonah was sinking down into the depths of the sea... God appointed an enormous fish to come and swallow him. And Jonah spends three days in the belly of this fish. And then by the command of the Lord, it vomits Jonah out onto the beach. And Jonah goes to the Ninevites and he warns them as God had commanded him. And they heed his warning by repenting. And God saves them from the disaster they deserve. Jesus says, you want a sign? I won't give you another sign on demand, but I will give you a sign. It's the sign of Jonah. And then Jesus draws a comparison between what happened to Jonah 
and what would happen to him. Verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. By the way, don't let that three days and three nights trip you up here. A lot of people said, see, Jesus wasn't in the, in the grave for three nights. Well, when you actually look at this Hebrew idiom and how it was used in the first century, it's not referring to literal days and nights. It's just referring to one calendar day. Jonah, he says that for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The heart of the earth here is the grave. The place where dead corpses are laid and typically, typically they decompose. Jesus is saying, I'm not going to perform a sign on the man, but I'll give you an undeniable sign, a sign that has already been planned by my father. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days or the fish for three days and then vomited out on the beach. So my body will be in the grave three days and then expelled out of death into life in my resurrection from the dead. Do not miss what Jesus is doing here. He's staking his entire reputation. He's staking the truthfulness of every word he taught. He's staking his authority that he claimed to have on an impossible event, humanly speaking. If such a sign were to come to pass, it would have to be God who did it. And if it happened, it would validate everything that Jesus had been claiming. Jesus would go on in the Gospel of Matthew and he would speak very clearly about his forthcoming death and resurrection on the third day. You can check that out later in chapter 16 and 17 and chapter 20. Just to give you an example, in chapter 20, verse 18, listen to Jesus driving down the stake on the impossible event that his entire ministry hinged on. Here's what he says to his disciples. See, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Not only had Jesus been saying it. The scriptures of the Old Testament had been foretelling the resurrection of Jesus hundreds of years before it took place. One example of that can be seen in Psalm chapter 16 through the pen of King David. King David, we see him inferring and, 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 and foretelling about the resurrection of this coming Messiah when he writes... For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. That's the place of the dead. That's the grave. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Or let your Holy One see corruption. That his body would not be corrupted in the grave. It would not decompose in the grave. Why? Because he would rise from the dead. And so we see that the scriptures had been foretelling the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus had been foretelling his resurrection to his disciples. And then it happened. On that pivotal Sunday morning almost 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Not just any sign, not just another sign, but the undeniable sign that Jesus is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he will do. That every word he spoke is the capital T truth from God. That he is the eternal son of God. That he is the long-awaited Messiah. This forever king who would rule over the earth. That he is the savior of all who will trust in him. And that he is the judge of all who won't. See, Christianity is no blind faith without reasons to believe. In fact, you have every reason to believe. Because God brought a dead man back to life as an undeniable sign for you and for me. Thus far we've seen the evil request and the undeniable sign and now we turn to the ominous warning in verses 41 and 42. Here's what it says. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. 
For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. What's Jesus doing? He's warning them. He's warning them that their hearts are so hardened in unbelief that they're so blind that they can't even see who's right in front of them. It's a prophet that's greater than Jonah who doesn't just repeat the words of God, but who is the word of God. Every word that cascades from this prophet's lips is the word of God. It's a king greater than Solomon who isn't just the wisest man in the world, but who is wisdom incarnate. The creator and sustainer and knower of all the secrets of the universe and beyond. See, he's warning them and us that wicked Nineveh repented at that little bite-sized message that, from God that Jonah brought them. But they refuse to repent when it is God himself preaching to them in his word. He's, he's warning them that the queen of Sheba just just heard about the wisdom of Solomon. She was a long way away from him, but yet she traveled from the ends of the earth to hear him, but they refused to listen to wisdom incarnate that's right in front of their face, God himself. And what does Jesus say is coming? Judgment. Condemnation. You see, Jesus here is implying that this undeniable sign that he promised, his resurrection, that it would be rejected by many in that evil and adulterous generation. And that's exactly what happened, isn't it? As Jeff read this morning, that the Roman guards who were guarding the tomb, they witnessed this great earthquake and an angel from the Lord rolling the large stone away from the tomb. And it says that they became like dead men, meaning that they probably fainted. And after they came to, what did they do? They rushed off to the tell the chief, chief priest what had happened. And the chief priests, they paid off the guards to say that the disciples came at night while they were asleep and they stole the body. They rejected the undeniable son. You see, that's theory and a number of other theories, they're still alive today. <laughs> this particular theory is known as the hoax theory. It's the theory that basically boils down to that the disciples lied about Jesus rising from the dead and that may sound like a, a possibility on the surface until you consider the implications of it. It's a lie that would have had, been, had to be corroborated by over 500 people that claim to have seen Jesus alive from the dead at the same time. It's a lie that didn't benefit the apostles. In fact, it made their lives incredibly difficult, beaten and pelted with stones and hated. And according to church history, 10 or 11 out of the 12 apostles being martyred for their claim that Jesus rose from the dead, dying in many cases very slow and painful deaths for a lie. And not one of them let the cat out of the bag that it was a big hoax. What an absurd theory. Another theory is what's called the swoon theory. This is the theory that, that Jesus didn't really die while he was on the cross. He just swooned or fainted and it just looked like he was dead. They took his body off the cross, they placed it in the tomb, and in that damp and cool environment, his body revived, and he was able to somehow make his way over to the large stone and roll it away and come out. And that may sound like a possibility to you until you realize what Jesus had already gone through. Many people didn't even survive the Roman flogging that Jesus endured, where, this, this, where the shards of metal and the bone on the whips ripped his skin open perhaps even exposing his bones. He was so weak, he couldn't even carry his own cross. And then the brutal crucifixion where he hung on the cross for hours. And then the Roman soldier, who would have been a, an expert in knowing when someone is dead, placing that spear in his, in his side and blood and water coming out, evidence that he was indeed dead. Swoon theory is absurd. And then another theory embraced by unbelieving hearts, which is known as the hallucination theory. This is the, the theory that the, the, the apostles thought that they had seen Jesus alive from the dead, but they were just hallucinating. Let me ask you, have you ever had a dream and gone to school or gone to work the next day and told somebody the details about your dream? And they say, ah, oh, that's amazing. I had that same exact dream. And then somebody else pipes up and says, me too. 
And then another, me too. All of a sudden, you've got 500 people who had the same exact dream as you last night. It's never happened, has it? And the reason it's never happened is because dreams don't happen and hallucinations don't happen on the corporate level. They happen individually. And so in order for the hallucination theory to be a possibility, that means that over not just the apostles, but over 500 people would have had to have the same exact hallucination at the same exact time. See, it doesn't take a scholar to figure out that all of these theories are absurd. All they are are sophisticated ways of remaining on the fence, of remaining in the darkness of false beliefs, where sin can be indulged and away from the light, away from Christ, where sin is exposed for, before, for what, what it really is, which is rebellion against God. But it's not just a place you come in the light to, to just feel guilty. It's a place in the light is where you can be forgiven and cleansed from your sin and have a transformed heart that actually hates the sin that you once loved and loved the righteousness that you once hated. You see, the resurrection is the most provable fact in history if you don't use a double standard. If you come to Grace Church, you probably heard Jeff say that. Which means that if you actually examine the historical accounts just like you would any other event that happened 2,000 years ago, you would come to the conclusion, oh no, this is no hoax. And this is no mistake. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. But Jesus says this, those who continue in unbelief, he warns them that judgment is coming. Look what he says in verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment. Jesus is declaring that there is a final judgment coming, a future final judgment. And there's going to be a resurrection at this future final judgment where those who are like the men of Nineveh who are saved, they're going to rise up. And those who are not saved, which are the, those in this generation that he's speaking to, they will rise up. And the same thing with the Queen of the South. She's going to rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. How tragic, how tragic it would be and will be on the day of judgment for those who continue to sit on the fence and reject Christ. And the most loving thing that I can say to you this morning, if that is you, be warned. Be warned. The resurrection proves it. And so we've seen today, we've seen this evil request, we've seen this undeniable sign, and we've seen Jesus give us an ominous warning, all pointing us to the fact that the resurrection of Jesus Christ should grip your soul because it is the undeniable sign that everything he taught is the capital T, truth. Let me ask you a question. What do we do with a message like this? Well, for a little bit of time that we have together, I want to offer you three truths that Jesus taught. Three truths that the resurrection validates. Truths that should grip your soul. Truths that should grab a hold of you and move you to the place where you drop your knee in worship through the crucified and risen Christ. First truth that Jesus taught. That the Old Testament scriptures are about him. You may remember after Jesus' resurrection, he's, he appears to some of his disciples that are on the, a couple of his disciples that are on the way to Emmaus, road to Emmaus, and they were kept from recognizing Jesus, and, and they had heard about these, these accounts of the tomb being empty, and they didn't really know what to think about those. They were kind of scratching their heads, and Jesus says to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's the Old Testament, beginning with Moses and all going to all the prophets, going through the whole Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Maybe you're saying, well, what did he say? We don't know. But we can, we can imagine hearing something like this. Remember Adam, the first man, whom God made the representative head of all humanity, whom when tempted, 
sinned and plunged all of humanity into sin and misery and brought death into the world? <laughs> well, I'm the last Adam who didn't fall when tempted, who has come to represent, be the representative head of my people and rescue them out of the sin and the misery and death that the first Adam brought into this world. You remember the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15? That God said, would, would promised would come and crush the head of the serpent. Rendering all the misery caused by his temptation null and void. I am the seed of the woman. Remember Noah's ark? Remember how God prepared an ark for Noah and his family so that they could be saved from the floodwaters of judgment that would come onto the world, into the world because of their sin? The ark was pointing to me. Whoever finds themselves in me, the ark, will be saved from the floodwaters of judgment to come because I will be plunged into that judgment for my people and I will bring them safely to the other side. Remember God's promise to Abraham? How one would come from Abraham's offspring in whom all the families of the earth would be blessed? <laughs> That's me. Through my life, death, and resurrection, I have made a way for my people to be reconciled to the Father and blessed beyond their wildest imaginations. Remember God's command for Abraham to sacrifice his only son? That was pointing to me. I'm the only son who would be sacrificed. Remember how God rescued his Abraham's son, Isaac, by sending him a substitute, a ram in the thicket that was ended up being killed instead of Abraham's son? That was pointing to me. I'm the substitute for all of Abraham's offspring. Remember the Passover lamb? Remember how God had commanded Israel to kill an unblemished lamb and smear its blood on their doorpost? And whoever had that blood of the lamb on their doorpost, God's judgment would pass over their household. I am the Passover lamb. Whoever trusts in me and in my blood shed for them, God's judgment will pass over. Remember all the sacrifices in the old covenant law? All the animals that would be slaughtered in the place of the sins of the people? That was all pointing to me. The Lamb of God who would take away the sins of people all over the world. Remember the suffering servant in Isaiah 53? Who would be pierced for the transgressions of his people, for the sins of his people? Who would not only be a priest who would offer a sin offering, but who would actually be that sin offering? Who would die? But then who Isaiah says in Isaiah 53.10 that, that after his death that his days would be prolonged. That he would rise from the dead? That's me. It's all been pointing to me. See, that's the tr truth that should grip your soul and cause you to bow the knee and worship of the crucified and risen and ascended Christ. The Old Testament was all about him, just as he taught. Second truth that Jesus taught, that the door of salvation is open for all who repent and trust in him. Jesus said this in John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. See, in order for us to understand the gospel, we have to start with God. Scriptures tell us that God is holy, that his very nature hates all that is evil and wicked and wrong. Scriptures tell us that he's also righteous and he's just. He does what is right. He's not a corrupt judge who turns a blind eye to evil. He must judge evil. He must judge sin. And the wages of sin, he has declared, is death. God said that the soul that sins shall die. Speaking not just of the physical death, but also the second death, which is hell. But you see, God is not just those things. God is also gracious and he's merciful. You may not know this, but one of the greatest acts of his grace and mercy is that he has given us his law, the Ten Commandments. He's given us his law to show us the standard by which we will be judged on that day of judgment. And when we actually compare ourselves to the Ten Commandments, what we actually see is that we're not good, that we're not innocent, that we are lawbreakers. It shows us that we are liars and thieves and murderers at heart, just like Jesus said, if you're angry with someone, you 
you've basically already committed murder in your heart. You're just as liable to judgment as murder. He said that if you look at another with lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart. We could go on and talk about how we've used God's name in vain and over and over and over again. We could see that we are in a mess. In a picture, our evidence table in the courtroom of God is stacked with enough sin to get, condemn us to death over a trillion times. And there's nothing that we can do about it except add to it daily. See, God is gracious to show us what is for a reason, for a purpose, to show us how much we need a Savior. And He has provided them. In the greatest act of love that this world has ever known, the eternal Son of God became a man just like you and just like me, taking on bone and flesh and blood just like us. Just like us, He was born under the law. The Ten Commandments, responsible to keep the Ten Commandments, just like you and just like me, except where you and I failed miserably, he succeeded perfectly, living the perfect, sinless life. So at, by the time that he took his last breath on that cross, it could be said of him that he was perfect in thought and word and deed, a perfect record of obedience, a perfect record of righteousness that he secured, not for himself, but for his people. Keep that thought in the back of your mind. We'll come back to it. And though he was perfect, he was, he was sentenced in a kangaroo court, falsely condemned as a criminal, and they ordered him to be crucified, one of the most brutal forms of death. And while he was on the cross, from 12 o'clock noon till 3 o'clock, the scriptures tell us that darkness plagued the land. A sign from God that something very eerie was going on. Jesus gave voice to it. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, Jesus had been declaring what hell would be like. He said, it's utter darkness. And indeed, though the physical earth where he was, was in utter darkness, the utter darkness was in his soul, in his heart, in those moments, in those hours. It's as if while he was on the cross, the eternal Son of God went into the courtroom and he saw the, the, the sin, the evidence table with the sin of his people stacked upon it and he went over to it and he scraped it all off and he said, this belongs to me. And in that darkness, the wrath of God that had been and that cup, you may remember Jesus talking about in the Garden of Gethsemane, that, the, that God, the Father, had put it in front of him, and he, was, he hadn't even drank a sip out of it, and he was so distressed in such sorrow, he said, I am sorrowful even to the point of death. And he sweat like great drops of blood. You see, the eternal wrath of God, the infinite wrath of God that was due for His people, instead of coming crashing down on them in hell forever, instead came crashing down on Jesus in their place. And He drank the full cup of that wrath in the place of His people until the point that He could say before He died, It is finished. The debt has been paid in full. And he breathed his last. He took his cold and lifeless dead body down off of the cross, carried the, the limp body and placed it in a tomb. And he laid there, no brain waves, no blood pumping, no heart pumping. But on the third day, just as he had promised, just as the Old Testament had, 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 had predicted, the sign of Jonah came to pass. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Now he commands all people everywhere to repent and to trust in him. Jesus said, repent and believe in the gospel. In order to take part in what Jesus has, has accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus requires something of you and of me that we repent, which means that we not only just give lip service that we're turning from our sin. Oh yeah, I'm turning from my sin. And yet continue just to live, live a life of sin. No, no. Repentance is this this turning away from, from your own sin out of hatred for it, 
Because you know how much is offensive to God, how it grieves God, and you're turning away from it, and you're turning to God with an endeavoring and a desire to follow Him for the rest of the days of your life in accordance with His Word. The second thing you must do is, is to, to trust in Jesus, to believe in Him. It's not enough just to know the facts of the Gospel. It's not enough to just assent that those facts are true. Scriptures are very clear of what a truly, true saving grace is from God. And it is, it, it is a complete trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're putting all of your weight upon Him for your salvation. You're, you're trusting in Him alone and nothing and no one else. If you're here today and you've not repented and trusted in Christ today, today is a, a gracious day for you because God has, has proclaimed his, his gospel to you through a weak man like me. And he is calling you to repent and trust in him. To have your sins forgiven. And the moment you do that, you know what God does? Oh, what grace. He takes that perfect record of Christ, that perfect righteousness that he lived in his perfect sinless life, and he takes it and he cloaks it around you as if you had lived the perfect sinless life. And it's on that basis that he declares you righteous in his sight. Not because it's your righteousness. It's an alien righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness. And God can still be just. And yet at the same time merciful to sinners. The door of salvation is open to all who repent and trust in Christ. And the third blessed truth that Christ taught that I want to mention today is that there is blessing beyond your wildest imagination awaits those who trust in Him. Revelation 21 Starting in verse 1 and going through verse 5. Speaking of this, what is to come after this life? What is to come after the final judgment? Here's what it says for the people of God. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither there shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away, and he who was seated on the throne, King Jesus, behold, I am making all things new. Death, defeated and eradicated. No more funeral homes. No more sitting beside your loved one as they pass. No more cancer centers. No more Alzheimer's units. No more pain management clinics. No more anxiety medicine. No more hospitals. No more FBI. No more CIA. No more crime. No more politicians. No more relational conflicts. No more divorce. No more sin. But best of all, no more separation from our God. We shall see Him face to face and be with Him forever. How can we know? How can we be certain that what Jesus taught is the truth? How can we be certain that what He taught is the truth and what the world teaches is not? Because God has provided us with an undeniable sign. His resurrection from the dead. The sign of Jonah. Well, as we close this morning, I want to leave you with the weighty words of one of my favorite preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, that appropriately sums up this message. Here's what he said. Upon a life 
I did not live. Upon a death, I did not die. I risked my whole eternity on the resurrection. If you're listening to me, my voice today, I want you to hear this clearly. Risking your whole eternity on the resurrection of Jesus Christ is no fool's bet. Because it is the sign of Jonah that he has given to us. He is risen. Let's pray. Glorious Lord, we are so thankful that you have given us an undeniable sign that we can, we can bank on. That Jesus would stake his entire reputation, his entire authority that he claimed to have, the, authority, the entire truthfulness of everything that he taught, that he would, he would stake it upon an impossible event, humanly speaking. And he did it. Because he knew that he would rise from the dead. And he did it for us. So we wouldn't have to scratch our heads and say, oh, this sounds good, I think this might be right. Or that sounds good, I think that might be right. He's put the nail in the coffin from every belief that sets itself up against him by rising from the dead. If there be any here today, Lord, that, that has not trusted in Christ through true, genuine repentance and faith, I pray that today would be that day by your grace. We know that no amount of evidence can, can, can save anyone we know it must be you through your spirit transforming the heart so that they'll believe. And so we pray for that today. And we pray for all of us who are trusting in him. Our faith would be solidified today. And that we would leave here living more faithfully for our crucified, risen, and ascended Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.